I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago, I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Series 2 of Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we can all do much better. Hi, and welcome back to Triumble Podcast Series 2. I hope you're enjoying these interviews as much as, as I enjoyed putting them together. Today, we are out in the field with Mike Douglas at Lowther in Cumbria. Mike and his partner Tamsin have been working with us over about eight or nine years now to do monitoring on a lot of the sites we've worked on. It's really, really important that we, I suppose scientifically if you like, but we go back and monitor what we've done and what the benefits of are for nature and for people. And Mike and Tamsin have been very much part of this process for us. You know, if we don't know what's working, then how do we know what to do again in the future? So Mike has done loads of monitoring for us. We're down at Lowther today, and we're talking about what he's doing to monitor the benefits for nature of the exercises we've done on that site. Um, I really hope you enjoy this. It includes beavers, and I think they are just fantastic animals. So let's listen to Mike on site with myself. So morning, Mike. We've, uh, we've come to one of my favorite habitat restoration sites. And this is really quite big now, isn't it? I mean, most, is it some, I think it covers about a couple of thousand acres of land. And, uh, and you've been a significant part of the monitoring of all of this. Uh, you're an ecologist. Yeah. Much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, we're sat right in the middle of it, aren't we? So we can see both to the east and the west of the River Lalva, and we're stood right beside um, a place called Milkeld Syke, where they've, they've blocked the drainage. And as a result, we've got... You know, up to a, a couple of hectares of, of flood water, isn't it? And for three years now, we've been looking at winter birds here, something that could change rapidly because of all the things they're doing at Lowther, different pasture, more scrub, more trees and more wetland. And sure enough, we've, we've seen some big increases. So I think we started with something like 18 teal and now we're regularly getting somewhere around 60 teal on these waters. They've been joined by widgeon, pintail. Today, a couple of shell duck down there. Oh yeah, the widgeon just flying back in. And snipe numbers similarly, uh, had maybe 20 on a good day. And uh, a couple of years later, we're now looking at 50 odd snipe coming out of the same area. So yeah, re really promising. Um, still somewhere to go as well, it's still so early. It's only three years on. And I think in another couple of years when the scrub starts to establish, 
and throw out flowers and berries, then you're going to have a whole different suite of species coming for, for them as well. The winter thrushes, um, buntings and finches that are going to take advantage of things that weren't there before. Yeah. So what we're looking at here is a, is a quite substantial new wetland that was created by blocking up drains, old agricultural drains, in a field that a few years ago was quite heavily managed by grazing, but has now been really slackened off with grazing. It's got longhorn cattle in here, uh, no sheep, and there's a huge restoration project underway here. It's fantastic to see it. But today you're here to monitor the frog spawn, and notably in the beaver area. So we have just behind us, we have the beaver area, which beavers came here, was it March 2020, I think the first one came in? Yeah, yeah. And they've been quite rapidly changing the landscape around the edge of a woodland and the stream. And you're monitoring for frog spawn, why is that? It's, they're, they're one of, amphibians in general, including frogs, are one of a group of species that are likely to benefit from the things that beavers do. Beavers um, will increase the amount of wetland, which is a no-brainer. It's increased the wetland, more spawning ground. But it's the complexity of those pools that they create as well. So you've got the, the um, dams full of twigs and sticks um, and mud, places that the frogs can disappear into, burrow into, overwinter in. And right beside them, you've got slow-flowing water, you've got still water, little backwaters. And um, it's those backwaters where we've found most of the, the spawn today. And this monitoring you've done, we've worked with you for quite some time now, uh, it's of eight or nine years. Monitoring is expensive. Do you, think, do you think we have enough knowledge of the countryside yet? Is your monitoring feeding us much information we don't already have? It's interesting that it's um, monitoring is expensive in terms of the overall spend for restoration projects I'd say it's peanuts um, it's a very small amount of money to learn how well your restoration work has worked and um, it's you know in the textbooks I read back at university 20 years ago they said you know if you do work on land you've got to monitor the change to see how well your work has, has changed things and uh, that's still the case, but very few people do it. And I think they do see it as expensive. And uh, in the big scheme of things, it, it's not. Um, I think the monitoring we do is quite varied as well. So we look at birds, we look at amphibians, we look at aquatic invertebrates, um, various plant species and, and um, pollinators as well. And to get us in for a day to go around looking at pollinators for instance or for spawn today we're also taking notes on the birds that are present um, giving feedback on um, new breeding species um, new invertebrates that we're seeing that you wouldn't get otherwise well we use you a lot and it's been a great pleasure for me because actually we've taken you to sites where we've gone in we've changed things you've monitored at early doors and then you've come back over successive years and you've come to me and said this is really changing this is really heading in the right direction but without that monitoring i wouldn't have learned some of that stuff that about how these sites change and so it's been a great journey for me as well actually um but monitoring to my mind is is the big missing picture in a lot of what uh our our nature conservation i suppose projects needs you know, are we doing the right thing yeah. Um, I, also, do we, I think historically, we've also, I suppose, made some assumptions about our landscape as to how it works. I think some of the things you've talked about today um, are seeing birds or, or 
plants or flowers in places where we would not expect them because that's what we've been taught to expect yeah yeah it's it's interesting it's it's essential to go in early and do the baseline survey to see what you've got in the first place and then to do the subsequent monitoring to find out what happens and what we found we, we just walked through a field of tussocks of coxfoot grass so this is one of the dominant grasses that any ecologist will look at and say oh we need to get rid of that it's um, it's swamping all the other species and um the, the vegetation diversity is very poor as a result but what we've seen here is species breeding here breeding in those tussocks such as reed bunting and you look at reed bunting's classic habitat it's um wetland edge reed beds um wet scrub uh, maybe large bracken beds and nowhere have i read that they'll nest in uh, coxfoot tussocks so yeah there's other benefits of that so those coxfoot tussocks will be full of voles they'll they'll harbor things like um, overwintering frogs and toads and um invertebrates as well invertebrates looking to overwinter in a nice nicely structured sward that wasn't there before when it was just short crop sward in the past there was nowhere for them to hide out the winter nowhere, nowhere for them to survive so this we've changed the habitat and with it we're changing some of the thinking about where things ought to be or could be or should be or yeah. maybe found i think i think there'll be a lot more surprises to come as well um yeah we we are taught classically this is this is what you find in this habitat. This is how we classify that habitat. This is the code we give it. And um, the thing is, all of that has been put together in a country that has been very modified by man, um, very broken habitats, if you like. And, and we've built some of our knowledge on that. So when you go into rewilding schemes, um, such as uh, we might have at Lauda here, um, we've got new things happening that we, we wouldn't predict. Um, I think some of the other stuff that we monitor for you is most of it's in the uplands. Uh, most of the monitoring we do for you is in the uplands. And that's particularly exciting because I think we've got in our heads that we have these lowland species and we have these upland species. And in fact, I think that will be very wrong. And we're going to get a lot of surprises, certainly in terms of breeding birds, that are going to take up that new scrub in the uplands and start mm. nesting there. And yeah, they'll nest at high altitudes as well if the habitat's there. So at T-Bay, we, what we, that scheme is now about 10 years old and we did through you some monitoring probably 2014, 2015, yeah. baseline stuff um, and you went back last summer 2022 yeah. and there was quite a change, wasn't there? Yeah, it's, that was one of those upland plots where we had made a pipit, made a pipit, a wren and another made a pipit and now we've got 10 new breeding species so that's seven years on from planting and enclosure and things that we'd expect like willow warbler and red are there stone chat as well but then things that we we wouldn't have expected so early like woodcock and grasshopper warbler as well um so yeah that's that's really exciting and and the perfect example of of what we can expect elsewhere i guess so that's the scheme you can see from the M6 as you go through the T-Bay Gap. And we fenced off quite substantially, about 126 hectares of ground and planted a range of scrubby species, hawthorn, hazel, a few oaks and a few um, alder, and lots and lots of rowan. Um, and it really is changing, but also the ground floor is coming back as well, isn't it? Yeah, and that'll be a big change. It's, 
things like grasshopper warbler are going to benefit from from that ground flora coming up that's where they're going to nest um, and even things like woodcock um, they, they like nesting in scrubby areas woodland edges but they need somewhere to hide as well um, so so the development of ground flora is really important um, something else that that was important and that we looked at there you do have some nesting waders on the the outskirts of the gill and um, you've got snipe you've got curlew and we were able to quantify how many were breeding early on um, in that, that year one monitoring and um, we've gone back since and they're still there so one of the fears is that woodland will affect neighbouring areas for, for breeding waders and we're able to keep an eye on that as well mm. and feed back to you on that. But the kind of woodland at Tebow is not Sitka spruce in big dark forests is it? It's actually very open um, in fact, there's probably more open space than there is woodland, really. Yeah, definitely. But we have that density of structure and the open open areas. We've got lots of wildflowers coming, more insects yeah. as a result. So it's probably, maybe it's a stage of habitat where th th those birds can accept it at the moment. I don't know if that'll change in 10, 15, 20 years, but I guess if we keep monitoring, we'll find out. Yeah, that's it. It's That's uh, that's exactly it. Um, on the, At the minute, it's just a, an upward trajectory, I think. Um, we've got... It, it's a fantastic place. You, you talked about the, the ground flora already. It's somewhere that you step into now and your feet disappears into the, the moss tussocks. But through those moss tussocks, you've got bilberry coming back as well. And off the back of that, within a couple of years there, there were um, green hair street butterflies coming back. And they just weren't there before. The bilberry mm. wasn't there before mm. their food plant. Um, so, yeah, you can, you can see the benefits of multiple layers of uh, wildlife, if you like. So we need to keep monitoring, keep, keep doing these schemes first off and then monitoring and learning from that and then telling other people about it, which is part of the reason for this day today. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's great to feedback, uh, great to be in that position to um, give some, uh, some feedback on some really positive restoration work. So should we go and find that beaver exclosure and see if we can get your frog spawn? Sounds good. Yep. Gonna have a look at um, spawn from frogs today. So we've doing, been doing frog spawn counts for three years. This will be the fourth year now. And uh, last year we had 117. After the year before, just having 56. And the reason for for this massive increase in in numbers of frog spawn is number one, the beavers that have dammed lots of pools in this woodland we're looking down on. And number two, some damming of uh, waterways by Lowther Estate, some creation of new wetland, um, both through digging ponds and through linking uh, some of their paleo channels, their old Oxbow lakes with the main river channel down at the River Lowther there. So just to go back a stage, this is, this is the, is it the first beaver reintroduction project in Cumbria? Yeah. And we're just going to go walk down into the exclosure. So <clears throat> you're monitoring, you said frog spawn, why, why, is, why is that? Well, it's, it's something that uh, um, has seen big increases elsewhere where they've introduced beavers to so places like the River Otter down in Devon. Uh, spawn counts just increased exponentially. And, um, you know, they're in... Uh, Amphibians are an important part of the 
of the habitat and ecosystem here and um, you know we just we just left a, a farmyard there where lalga are rearing white stalks to release into this environment and if you're going to keep a number of large birds like white stalks going you need lots of food one of those food sources is, is amphibians of course um, early on before we did this before they started the restoration work here um, South Lakes Ecology did some amphibian surveys, looked for great crested newts and other species of newt and frogs, found signs of all of them, so there's uh, at least four species of, of amphibian here. So we knew they were here, we knew that they were all set to increase as soon as the habitat improved and the opportunity arose. So this is a, it's a major habitat restoration project, isn't it? <coughs> and you've been helping us with monitoring some of those, some of the elements that have gone on here. But, you know, we're now looking pretty much shoulder to shoulder. We've got wood pasture creation, we've got wetland creation. Uh, the river has been um, altered so that it, it, it connects with the floodplain a bit more. And we have the beavers just below us. So it's quite an amazing project, this. Was it year five or six of this project? Something like that. Yeah. And you've been monitoring here for... For four years now, I guess. So 2019 we started, um, so this is the fourth year. And th things have changed here really quickly. Um, I guess, lot, like you say, lots of restoration has taken place at the same time in terms of increasing the wetland area, but also changing the grazing regime. So from being intensively managed fields of silage, arable crops, um, or intensive pasture. We've now got extensive pasture, um, some of which has been restored with, with hay meadow species. Um, we've got lots more structure. You look down so you mean density, you're doing height of vegetation? And the variability in that height. So we look across the field now, which four years ago would have been this time of year, short cropped. Um, later on, if it was left for silage, it would be a foot, two foot high, but it would be a monoculture, it would, would all look the same. Now you've got a very um, very mixed field full of tussocks, there's rush tussocks, there's grass tussocks, there's short grazed areas, there's longer grass, uh, there's bare areas, there's wet areas. And each one of those different um, types of vegetation are, are, are used by different animals. Um, and for instance, you know, we talked about why amphibians might be increasing because of the increase in wetland area. But those amphibians need somewhere to overwinter as well. So your frogs and your newts will be win overwintering in some cases in the middle of those grass tussocks and mm. rush tussocks which weren't there before. So these fields were quite heavily cropped before and very, very short grass. And now these clumps are here. So that just offers up so much more opportunity for all sorts of wildlife to come yeah. back in. And with those increased maybe insect numbers or amphibians, you've then got the food for birds. And actually, as we look down here into these now really quite wet fields, it's hoofing with, with bird life. Yeah. Um, we've got geese moving in the round of the back, background with all sorts of things emerging. And as we go down, I think we'll put, put some of those up in the air, won't we? So yeah. let's go down, shall we? Yeah, it's great to great that we've done so many different types of monitoring over the four years. Um, as you mentioned, that uh, invertebrate numbers increase and, and bird numbers off the back of that perhaps. 
and we've done pollinator transects now for three years and what we've seen is huge increases in some things such as the small bumblebees things like car carder common carder bumblebee early bumblebee and also some of the butterflies and the, and the one that's been most striking perhaps has been the small skipper and the small skipper needs these tussocks to overwinter they'll overwinter as a larva and come out in the early in the spring feed up before pupating and then uh, flying and um, we've had a huge increase in small skipper off the back of the change in management of these fields and the increase in uh, structural diversity of these fields and off the back of that you've got more birds you've got more opportunity for birds so again talking about this structure I'll keep harking back to that um, within two years you had tree pipit moving in so we did a bird survey in 2019, no tree pipit present. Yep. Two years later, tree pipit. And tree pipit, as the name suggests, they sing from the top of trees and bushes, but they nest on the ground. And back in 2019, there was no opportunity for them to nest on the ground. The vegetation wasn't there for them. Now it is, and all of a sudden you've got five, five um, territories for tree pipit where they weren't before. Alongside that, you've got more sedge warbler, you've got grasshopper warbler coming in. Um, and yeah, it's quite exciting to think what we might have in the next couple of years. We'll probably come back at year five and do the full um, full breeding bird survey and see what, what changes we've got. So these rapid changes, really, it's a change in agricultural system here, but it's also the, the, the beaver exclosure that's, that's been put in too. So this massive change in water and hydrology. But all of those things combined has brought back these other species in a very short space of time. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, it's amazing. We've got down to the beaver area now, where they, we've got down to the first little dam. And this is one of a number of dams. This one's only less than a foot tall, but it's holding back a lot of water at the edge of this woodland. Immediately inside that, we've got trees that have been felled. One is more than a foot in diameter at the base there. It's lying down, some of the bark stripped off. And look beyond that, we've got more trees felled, um, more pools created. and. If we were to try and create this ourselves with um, chainsaws and diggers, um, firstly, we'd make a lot of mess, produce a lot of carbon, yep. and we wouldn't do as good a job. We wouldn't create this tangled mess that so many invertebrates, so many birds love, and uh, not to mention the amphibians that we're looking for today. Well, the dam is, is, what, maybe a foot and a half high and maybe a foot and a half wide, um, but it's got sticks laid across it. It's, it's got stones. They've obviously been big, digging up stones from somewhere. It's got mud in it. It's got, actually, it's got things growing in it as well, hasn't it? So it's got um, celandine in there and things like that. Yeah, it looks like there um, is some there. And uh, so it's, it's a thing of joy in its own right, but it's holding back a, a pool and they, those, those willows that have been cut down and dropped in the pool. It, it looks messy, but it also looks incredibly natural. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, which is, is something we definitely couldn't recreate ourselves. Um, and it's, it's so fast as well. So obviously they've been in here, what, three years now? Um, but you could see things like this within six months. It was, it's amazing how busy they are. And, uh, yeah, the, the effects are very, very quick. And more extensive than you, you believe as well. Just the network of dams that they've got, the network of tunnels and, and runways alongside those dams and uh, the amount of dead wood they create and the tangled, this tangled, this tangled mess of vegetation which you just don't get in, in uh, 
man managed environments and, and that's what wildlife really likes. So you're clearly very excited by this yeah. as an ecologist. Oh, oh really yeah. excited. It's it's a really positive thing, fantastic that it's happening in our county and uh, yeah, lucky to be here monitoring it. So we better go and do some monitoring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what we're here for. <laughs> So Mike's got a little iPad thing here with <coughs> a map on it. And it's starting to mark out where he's seen different different things. Yeah, so we're, we're at a, a pool which is sort of... Um, we've got runoff from the, the wood where the beavers have formed the dams, so they're causing the water from the drain in the wood to run into the field. But they've also partly dammed up this pool here by shoving mud up against the outlet. We've just got we're slightly raised up, we've got a pool a couple of foot deep. And we've got our first frog spawn of the day. So what I look for is one clump, we call one clump, something 30 centimetre in diameter, mm -hmm. and try and estimate how many clumps we've got based on that. So around the other side there, one, two, three, four. Some of them are a bit mud coloured, so they're, um, they're hard to see just now. So, I'll put my point on the map. D1, number of clumps, four. It's all very high tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why it could um, probably go wrong. Okay. So how do I get down there? So Mike's just moving with a a pen over his um, <laughs> iPad here and just marking up on a map what we've seen. And in the background there's this constant bird noise, which is fantastic. Yeah, here's a goldfinch twittering away. There were skylark behind us when the sun was out a minute ago. This is why you need to go out with an ecologist because they, they don't even need to see anything. They just say, oh, yeah, that's a such and such. I've never quite got there. It's taken me a long time, <laughs> to be fair. So you weren't always an ecologist, were you? In fact, you, you came from quite a humble background. Yeah, I um, come from the west coast of Cumbria and... Um, And yeah, the uh, finished school, 16, thought I'd do what lots of people do there and, and move into one of the local engineering firms. Went and did an apprenticeship with British Steel and then decided that that wasn't the way forward for me. Um, and I couldn't be stuck in a factory all my life. So I decided to join the army. Yeah, Went that and did sounds that like... for a while, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See the world, get outdoors a bit more. Um, and didn't last long there. Mercifully got uh, discharged with a niggly little injury that wouldn't go away. And then eventually just got back into education and, and did my ecology degree, did my volunteer work and, and then worked for the Wildlife Trust and the RSPB and the National Trust before um, eventually going self-employed mm. with my wife. And uh, never looked back since. 
Well, we first met you when you were at the, at the Wildlife Trust doing a juniper project. So trying to get juniper back into the uplands in Cumbria. And yeah. you were the juniper go-to for, for quite some time. Was that a three-year project? Yeah, three-year project with um, Cumbria Wildlife Trust. And um, it, that was probably my first taste of working in the wider countryside, away from nature reserves, and working with farmers and landowners to monitor what they had on their land and to try and encourage them to, to plant more scrub. Um, so it, it led really nicely into some of the work that I now do with you. You, you do the tree planting and, and the scrub planting and um, get us in to do the monitoring. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something I'm, I'm really keen on because we've got a lot of bare uplands in Northern England and they shouldn't be as bare as they are. Mm. There should be more scrub up there. And when there is scrub, there is huge benefits for wildlife. And it's just a more interesting place to be. So I need to um, get this working. <laughs> you mentioned in the technology, um, this is the first time I've used it. So, well, let's pause the conversation for a minute while you do that. Yeah. So we're just actually now in the wood and it has been significantly <laughs> wetted up by the activities of the beavers and it's literally a, a just a, a network of young coppiced shoots older trees some trees that have been dropped particularly the willow actually the willow's really had to go at and that's just coppicing really nicely um, there's silver birch in here as well just stood by a little bit of willow and the chips, the bark chips the beaver have cut out are about, well, 75 millimetres long. Um, and uh, they're significant chips, actually. They'd be great on the garden. <laughs> Maybe you should take some of the garden. Um, and uh, Mike's worked his way up to one of the beaver dams. Oh, dear. This is really quite hard going. <laughs> there we go. Hard to get around, isn't it? It is hard to get around. And we've got a lovely dam here, which is just completely, it's so obviously made by a beaver. It's <laughs> just brilliant. Um, all of the, all the um, bits of wood have got spikes on them as they're being cut with teeth. Most. This looks like quite a recent pond for me, a recent dam, recent pond. Yep. Big already. We've got one, two, three, four, and more pumps of frog spawn here. mid-March. In fact, we're just beyond yeah. the middle of March, aren't we? So um, there was a rash of frog spawn coming out earlier in the year, a lot of which then gets frosted. So where are we in terms of your expectations of what, of where we are in the season, really? Well, now that I've done this for a couple of years, we're, we're bang on where we should be, I think, at Lowther. 
So what are we? We're up here, we're nearly 200 metres in altitude. So I live down on the coast at the south of the county and we had frog spawn just over a month ago. And that's exactly what happened last year. We were a month earlier than Lalva. Um, so yeah, quite amazing, it, it hard to hold off. I saw that frog spawn down in our pond in the garden and thought, oh, we've got to get up to Lalva. But sure enough, we've just got fresh, fresh frog spawn this week. Um, so we're, we've timed it perfectly. So that, that, that range in, even within a county of timings things is quite interesting, just you know, when different things like frog spawning happen, but also the distribution of birds and when they move around. Um, obviously a bird much concerned at the moment is curly, but they're now beginning to filter into the uplands again. Um, so I, it's quite an interesting space where there's just different things happening in the county at different stages. Yeah, it's, it's nice here that we did have curly on the field in really low numbers when we started monitoring, but last year they were very much around just outside of this woodland where the beavers are, again probably because of the improvements in that field and, and the increased amount of water on that field, but also a couple of pairs of laprings as well which weren't there before at all, and I half expected them today. Um, it's, it's a little early in the season, but lapwing can be really early and, and can be displaying in, in the middle of March. Um, but yeah, it looks like they're, they're perhaps not here yet. We were talking earlier about monitoring the scrub. And that's really, the, I suppose, the major project you've done with us, which is scrub monitoring. Um, and that's been really helpful for me because as a woodland person, but not an ecologist, um, I've always wanted to make sure we're doing the right thing. Um, and having that ecological uh, monitoring going on, having somebody there saying, well, when you do this, this happens. When you do this, this happens. It's been really helpful. Yeah, it's helpful in so many ways, I think. I mean, firstly, you don't want to plant trees where there are lots of birds already, birds that appreciate open habitat. Things like the curly, for example. Yeah. And by and large, we've just not come across those in, uh, in the places where trees have been planted. And um, in general, those early surveys we did in year one were very boring. It was, <laughs> it was hard to do. We knew that was probably the case. Um, but yeah, true enough, it was Medipipit, Medipipit, Wren, Skylark, if we were lucky, Wheatier, if we were lucky and not at high densities either. So that was reassuring that it really was that poor, that they were good places to plant trees and, and improve the wildlife value of the land. But now I think the last set of monitoring you did for us, it showed in those areas. Um, there's some more frog spawn down here, quite some big yeah. pumps there, yeah. yeah. Let's just check with on a little bit further. Um, <clears throat> it really showed how with that scrub creation, so hawthorn, rowan, oh, no. you know, the older things like that, these birds are coming back. Yeah, we, it, we've gone far enough now that we can see things responding to the planting. So last year up at T-Bay Gill, we found we've got 10 new species, 10 new breeding birds. Uh, 
five years, six years on from that first survey. And some of those were, were things we expected, so we thought, right, we plant scrub, sure enough, you're going to have those scrub speci um, specialists, such as Willow Warbler and Red Pollen, and sure enough, they're there at T-Bay. But then other things that we didn't expect so early on, like uh, Woodcock and Reeling Grasshopper Warbler, um, were real nice surprises and, and I think we're going to continue to throw up yeah. those surprises because we've, we've not had the templates there in the past. There aren't other places we can go where, where there's lots of scrub in the wood, in the uplands and see what, what should be there. So well, it, it was exciting. really exciting stuff, wasn't it? Because it was the biggest um, project of its type when we set out to do it. But it was bare ground. And now it's not, 10 years on. But the speed of change, that 10-year period, is tiny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the speed of change. We just stood here over a magnificent clump of frog spawn. Um, so, yeah, how do we divide this up? There's one clump across there. Yep. Two. Three, four, five, six, seven. I think that's got to be eight. There it is. That's a big clump, isn't it? A big amalgamation of clumps. I'll just tiptoe across the dam and see what else is in there. So we're actually walking along a dam which was one of the earlier dams, maybe even, maybe even have been the first dam they did in here. So the beavers have moved around quite a lot already, and again, a relatively short space of time. There's a whole bunch of sticks in front of me which look like they've been kept as a larder and then they're all completely bare of bark now. Let's mark those up. Get that down. We just stood right next to the Lodge, the Beaver's Lodge, with clear pack trackways, pathways off, and again, quite a lot of um, quite a lot of frog spawn. This is just going to get harder and harder to walk through here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's um, that's the case with all of the surveys we've done. So up to now, you go out and do the first survey, and it's pretty much bare ground, as short cropped grass and you can walk across it very easily and suddenly um, we're now high stepping over tussocks and disappearing in holes and but yeah it's uh, it's good to see. But that's that's I mean that's exactly it isn't it is it's, it's gone from a highly managed landscape with lots of grazing to one where actually nature has taken control and nature likes this complexity. Yeah yeah and it's if we want wildlife, um, that's that's what we need. It's uh, messy complexity that you don't get in enough places at the moment. Um, it's interesting. The beavers have clearly got uh, they got takeouts, haven't they? They've got their, their version of a of a takeout is these short sticks they've, they've cut, and they're clearly eating them and then abandoning them. So there's just huge amount of eaten dead wood lying around. Yeah just adding to the complexity of the system, more deadwood. And in fact, the way that the water is now forming around the base of some of these trees that don't like being in water, some of the trees are now actually dying. And they're covered in fungi 
and, uh, and mosses and lichens. And that's just adding to this, again, complexity of dead wood, live wood, height, density, structure. Um, it just, it's a phenomenal mess, <laughs> really. But it's a beautiful mess, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's the scale of the, the improvement for wildlife is huge, isn't it? Because like you said, just at every level, We've got dead wood, we've got things that live in the dead wood, we've got the fungi, we'll have things that eat the fungi, specific types of fungi. Um, we'll have birds coming in and feeding on the invertebrates. And, yeah, it, it's just... There's there's nothing negative about it in terms of uh, wildlife value. And there's no plastic, no pesticides, herbicides, no. no additives. Just... They just eat bark, don't they? Yeah, and, and no diesel and um, yeah. petrol for your chainsaws used to, to, to make it all happen. So this wouldn't be appropriate in all landscapes and everywhere because of, the, because of course the in, in agricultural values and, and the food production and things like that. But here, in an old meadow system, this seems this feels to me perfectly right yeah. to be here. Yeah, absolutely perfect. It's, um, yeah, the combination of this woodland, wet woodland edge that we already had and the wet field alongside it and uh, you know it appears that they're very happy with with what they've got here doesn't it well just the sheer amount of work they're doing and and you know there's they clearly moved around a lot and yeah just this, um, yeah they just developing a dam here because uh, a lodge here sorry there's another big structure up there, isn't there? With a, we've got a clear path between the two. And it is a clear path, actually. It's, it's actually the most walkable bit. And it is quite amusing. They've, had, they've clearly had a pop at quite a few bigger trees and then left them. Yeah. So, and in fact, there's a bunch of birch here where... Um, what's it sort of 12 stems and they've they've taken out half a dozen of them um, and there's obviously some half finished jobs there <laughs> it's strange isn't it how, how, how they choose what to take and what to leave and one of the things I was worried about early on was I noticed that Lather Estate had, had planted scrub around the, the pond they dug at the edge of the wood um, so just they'd put willow stakes in and, and willow grows so quickly just uh, if you cut the stakes and stick them in the ground there and I thought, well, the, the beavers are going to be right on top of it, but they're not. They, you know, they choose to take down these big trees and strip the bark off instead. And you've still got loads of regeneration happening in the wood here and outside in the field as well. Well, as a woodsman, you'd come into here and you might, you might say, well, look, they, they're chopping down some big trees and, and we want those big trees. But actually, what's happening instead is a huge amount of coppicing. It's a very vital wood. There's loads and loads of young trees in here. There's lots of light as well, and obviously with trees, tree managing trees, you need light levels. So it it feels right. Equally, this is only 15 metres from the stream. If we go further up the hill, there's no activity here at all by the beavers. Yeah. So that bit of woodland is is pretty secure. It looks very secure. Yeah. At, at the moment, at, at the stage the beavers are at now, the population that are that are in here. It looks ideal, like ideal woodland management. So you come in and you, you want to see all of your layers, your, your good ground flora and then your, your understory and your taller trees, and it's all here, although it is a young woodland and there's yeah. not many tall trees yet. Um, yeah, it's, it's looking fantastic. What's that calling in the background? A wren. A wren. 
proudest bird for its size. I can see I can see it on a something over there actually. Yeah. We're early in the season still for birds, so we yeah. when we monitored this bit of wood early on it was already quite rich. It was full of willow warbler, red pole. I think we had black cap and garden warbler. But um a lot of those species I've just named them are migratory and they, they won't arrive for another three weeks perhaps. And so they migrate they migrate here, have have a brood here? Yeah, a brood. Some of them have two broods, and um, then they'll migrate south again, West Africa, South Africa. The red poles stick around the whole year, but they'll be travelling around in flocks looking for uh, things like alder seed and birch seed outside the breeding season. And in fact, there's plenty of alder now coming into Catkin, isn't there? Yeah. So. But yeah, it's a good time to learn your, your songs, Pete. <laughs> We've only got only got Wren singing in the woodland at the moment. I could do some of them, but it's just the, it's just like everything else. There's just so much to learn, isn't there? Yeah. Um, it took me years, like literally homing in on a few regular species that you hear all the time, and then comparing them to similar ones, and then there's a little bit of a an exponential increase as you you're able to translate. Or, or describe what you're hearing, the more experience you have, the better you get at describing what you're hearing and therefore remembering it. Well, it's the same for me though, when I look through a woodland, um, I can tell you exactly what the species are, even in winter, because, yeah. because we're looking at birch. Birch birch is clearly different from the willow, um, but I know a lot of people who are tree blind as well, they actually yeah. can't see the difference. And at this stage, the young oak have all retained their leaves, um, and beech does that as well. So you can look into a winter woodland and think, Okay, well, oh, oh, that looks just a mush, but actually, you can see individual trees in there quite easily once you once you once you once you know what they look like. I guess that's the same with the bird song. Yeah, you've got to know a couple of common species before you can move on and compare with others. But this is how we assess things, isn't it? Speed and what I love about going out with you is actually the, the speed of your assessment. You're knowing, you're hearing stuff, you're looking for stuff the whole time, you're observing, um, and it's all going in. And that, that's just an experience of understanding a landscape and what it looks like and how it feels. Yeah. Um, it's completely immersive for me. It's, I can cope with talking to you while we do this frog spawn survey, but if we were doing a bird survey, I couldn't do this. I, no, I'd no. be ignoring you. I'd, I'd be just immersed in what <laughs> Well, that's what you should be doing anyway, really, is ignore me. But, um, and that immersive assistant, I mean, does that help you mentally? Are you, do, you, do you find that, that a day's work is hard work or is it... Yes, but not not um, not in a bad way. So yeah, it, like other immersive things, mindfulness, it's, it would help your your state of mind, and it does. But yeah, it, yeah, it can be hard in terms of I can walk miles across um, some sketchy terrain like this. Um, I get home tired but happy, you know. Yeah. Oh, there's a bird just got, gone up there. Got a kestrel. Just coming in. Looks like it's hunting. Nice to hear that curlew in the distance behind us, so there yeah. is at least one on territory. Goldfinch are back. A little cluster of goldfinch. They're chittering away to each other. So what have you got there, Mike? I, well, I'm assuming it's beaver pool. <laughs> I've seen a few bits in these pools, so I don't think it's, there's a bit down the bottom of the pool there. Yeah. I don't think it's just a stray bit of um, fox poo or something. It's very fibrous. 
That looks like it's got it's a hundred percent tree to me. Yeah, you can still see lumps of bark. So these are what's that about a centimetre by two centimetres? Yeah. With quite a pointy end on it. Yeah. So we think we think we've discovered beaver poo. <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly, we've also just stood on on a limb of a of a of a willow that's been dropped onto the ground and may may well have been incorporated into a dam, but it's now it's effectively layering, so it's um, sending up shoots from the side of the willow. So these are young shoots going up um, to give us yet more trees. So it's a really interesting system, this. They're almost uh, cultivating their own environment for yeah. their own benefit, aren't they? Yeah, it's the, the typical thing you do when you're laying a hedge. You make um, cut the stem halfway through, bend it over, make contact with the ground, and you hope that it takes root there and sprouts again. And uh, willows are especially good at doing that, and this is that's what's happening here. And these pieces are now six foot high. Yeah. I keep mixing my feet in my centimetres. That's <laughs> <laughs> my age. It's my age. I wonder when you said that dam was a foot and a half wide, you know. <laughs> oh, do you mean metres? <laughs> no, I meant feet. I still remember being taught in feet and inches and metric as a kid. I had a little bit of that, so I'm, I'm uh, I can manage more. I'm slowly drifting towards the metric, even in terms of miles and kilometres, and getting more. Just, I guess, probably in my case, it's because the maps uh, have this kilometre grid work on them, and you, yeah. it's very easy to work in kilometres. I think I just, it feels to me as I can, I can competently do both. Um, yeah. Somehow though, there's a, there's a, a comfort in old measures. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it feels like a comfortable thing to know. As you could probably tell from the interview we had with Mike, he's, he's just an amazing ecologist he's out there measuring for us monitoring for us on various things and he's passionate about the nature he looks at uh, the site we looked at uh, in in Lowther there's so much work gone on there in the last few years to bring back nature but it's still a farmed site so they've still got animals on site it's this combination of farming and nature which really excites me and I think you can tell from Mike's descriptions of what he's looking at that there's a lot more nature on that site than there used to be and we're hoping in the future years there's going to be more and more of this. Next week, we go back up to Scotland, in fact. Um, and I had a, a lovely, lovely couple of days uh, walking and talking with Alistair and Sam on their croft. The croft is on Morven, and it's in that rainforest zone. And if you remember one of the specials we did a few weeks ago on the rainforest in Scotland, one of the uh, characters that's working hard in that space is Alistair. So... Tune in next time we have Tree Amble Podcast. You've been listening to the Tree Amble Podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. 
Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul. Thank you.